0: Welcome to the University of California San Francisco Sports Medicine Podcast featuring Dr. Nero Fundia, Dr. Brian Feely, and Dr. Drew Lansdowne discussing hot topics in sports medicine and society. We hope you enjoy our podcast and look forward to hearing from you. Welcome everyone to our UCSF Sports Medicine Podcast, six to eight weeks with myself, Dr. Nero Fundia, and Dr. Brian Feely. Um, today we'll be talking about skiing and snowboarding injuries. It's that time of year, particularly in the Bay Area. There's tons of torrential downpour right now, which is really creating a large snowpack um, up in uh, Tahoe, where a lot of people go skiing. Um, but a lot of people have questions every year. What are the some of the risks of skiing? Is skiing versus snowboarding better? Um, what should I do if I get injured? So. Um maybe just to start off brian in in general um when people are going to start doing skiing and snowboarding for the first time you know after after a period of time in the summer what what general things should they should they do to to get in shape like what are some of the things that they should do
1: Sure, so I don't think we have a great answer because I think one of the most common things we get is Um, Are there exercises that you can do that are going to prevent an injury from happening? And when you look at the data, there isn't great data to say, well, if you do exercise X three times a week for six weeks, you're actually going to decrease your injury rate, which I think is frustrating for a lot of things. We think that if we just do the right exercise, if we follow the right diet, we'll decrease our risk. I think in general, what I tell my patients is that if you can get your core muscles strong and especially your lower body core muscles, so your um, hamstrings and your glutes and your quads, Um, As strong as you can within within a certain degree of uh, you know relevance, um, then you're probably going to injury your injury risk is going to decrease a little bit. Um, In terms of how, how or why to do that, I think many ski injuries tend to happen with a little bit of fatigue, and even if you don't really realize it. If your muscles are a little bit more tired than you realize and you hit a funny patch of ice or a slushy area and your ski twists in, then that that increased amount of fatigue that your muscles can no longer handle may increase your risk of injury a little bit. That said, that's not proven. So that's a, in general, if you exercise a little bit more, build up some resistance to fatigue that may decrease your injury risk. What about you, Nirav? What do you tell patients or the parents of your kids that go back to skiing?
0: Yeah, I do the same sort of thing. I think you have to really be cognizant of the fatigue uh, part of it because you know if you're fatigued, you know obviously with sports there's some studies about in, ACL injury risk, etc. But I think on the ski slopes, if you're fatigued and you're going down a black diamond, double black diamond, and and you can't control yourself, you can seriously in- injure your, injure your body. So I tell, particularly for the younger skiers, I say, look, if you're getting a little bit sore, you're tired, you're hitting hour, three hour, four maybe rest, take an hour off, go back to the lodge, or maybe get back and ski the next day. So I agree that fatigue, number one. And then number two, particularly when you are getting a little bit fatigued, not to jump up to that next level. A lot of people will say, look, I'm going to start at the easier slope. And hour three, I'm going to go up to the black diamond, the double black diamond. And that's where you're setting yourself up for injury. So absolutely respect the fatigue make sure you're doing it at the appropriate skill level. And I think for a lot of people jumping into ski season, if you haven't done it in a long time, just make sure you're, especially your first one or two runs doing something that's a little bit technically less challenging. Um, Cause you just want to have the time to
1: figure out and compensate if you're going down that Hill really, really fast. So I think uh,
0: understanding where you are is really key.
1: Okay. So you mentioned black diamonds and double black diamonds. I'm not sure how many double black diamonds there really are um, at uh, Boreal where you go, <laughs> but um, is injury risk higher or lower for the more complicated ski routes? That's a great question. You know, I think
0: that it, it's a little bit hard to kind of differentiate that out. I think that typically when you are on the higher level kind of technical ski routes, um, you're probably having more skilled skiers. Um, I actually think that probably the higher injury risk is probably on the easier routes for people who aren't ready to ski yet or don't necessarily know their skills. So people are going out for the first time, they're going down that, you know, that kind of moderate level intensity in they injure themselves. And, Typically, I think that particularly for older patients that you probably see it's probably uh, less on that technical ski routes. I find that with the kids where I see a lot of them getting injured is when they are actually on the more technical ski routes, so I kind of see two variables, probably the adults who are who are just getting out there, have their friends out there they're going to go ski, get injured on the, the easier ones, and then the kids are the ones who get injured on the the higher level technical ones because they're trying to do stuff because they feel fearless. I don't know what your thoughts about that, Brian
1: yeah, so you're right, so I looked it up last night. Um, In general, injury risk is higher for younger people, and it peaks in the 20s to 30s, which when you think back to when you're in your 20s and 30s, you think you're invincible, but unlike children, you aren't. Uh, Factors that increase the likelihood of injury are skiing above your level, snowboarding above your level, um, poor conditions of the snow, although that was all conditions. And this was a little bit surprising for me. skiing or snowboarding under the influence which occurred in about 25 percent of the injuries that this that i studied so turns out if you're drunk skiing down a slope or under the influence and skiing or snowboarding down a slope that you maybe shouldn't have done if you had your full facilities you're at increased risk for fracture or uh, or other injury
0: yeah i mean i guess that makes sense i mean people (laughs) you know they ski a couple slopes go down there get a drink and then feel great go back up and yeah it's uh, going 70 miles an hour down a ski slope uh, intoxicated probably is not a good idea, yeah, you know <laughs> Now you know one of the questions we get a lot, you know there's, if, if anyone on our, in our audience has been skiing, the ski, skiing versus snowboarding, you know there's obviously thoughts about which one who should be on the slope and who should be you know which, which one's quote unquote better. But when you look at injury risk, are there differences in terms of overall
1: injury risk or what's getting injured between the two? Sure. I think both of them are equally risky and the difference is pretty minor. So when you look at the overall numbers of injuries, it's about 55% uh, skiers, 45% snowboarders, but that that's also the same proportion of number uh, for most mountains. It's about uh, 60, 40 skiers versus snowboarders. So the overall risk of injury is about the same, but the injuries that we see are really different. So for ski injuries, the most common one, not surprisingly, are fractures. So hand fractures, um, small ankle fractures. Overall, the number of fractures are is the highest. And the second is knee injuries. And the knee injuries that they see most often are MCL sprains, so the ligament on the inside of your knee, Um, And that's second to ACL injuries, um, which is the one that's for many skiers is the most catastrophic, because that's the one that's going to hold you out for essentially the rest of the season, maybe the next season as well. For snowboarders, again, fractures, especially of the hand and the distal radius, so at, at your wrist, is the most common injury, followed by shoulder injuries and fractures of the shoulder um, many of those are small, non displaced fractures. And the third most common is actually shoulder dislocations, which kind of makes sense. If you think about how you can dislocate your shoulder, it's with a surprise movement with your arm kind of rotated up and out from your shoulder, which is often what happens if you're trying to carve a turn with your upward arm uh, when you're snowboarding. So, um, ankle fractures are relatively uncommon in snowboarders, but there's something called a snowboarder's fracture, which is a foot fracture, which overall, We talk about a lot but it's pretty uncommon compared to the other injuries so if you're if you're
0: going out to the slopes for the first time let's say you're a 43 year old male um (laughs) and uh would you say it's safer to ski or snowboard
1: um if you were a 43 year old male used to the flat streets of chicago i would say snowshoeing (laughs) and (laughs) cross-country skiing um in general as somebody who's done both a fair amount i think the learning curve of snowboarding is a lot harder but because you're usually going so slow early on if you're doing if you're wearing some sort of protection meaning a helmet um which is pretty much ubiquitous these days and probably wrist guards because if that if said 43 year old falls and can't operate for 8 weeks then there there's a whole host of problems that happens after that <laughs> Um, As long as you're wearing some protection, I think the steeper learning curve of snowboarding keeps people from having those serious injuries. Skiing, conversely, you can get okay pretty quickly because you just point your skis down and you can snowplow. The problem is with that snowplow move, that's the exact movement that if you're not controlled can tear your ACL. Yeah, and
0: and speaking of ACL injuries, I know we see a lot of people, as you mentioned, who injure their knee. How do you know, you know, obviously, if the medical people are up there they'll they'll tell you but how do you know when something's happened to your knee that you should stop or or potentially
1: you know see see someone for a further workup sure so i think when you're skiing the classic mechanism is you were skiing in some sort of condition that you weren't quite comfortable in you you tried to turn and you didn't quite turn the way you wanted to you felt your ski turned inward hard and usually the bindings don't release and you hear a pop or feel a pop in your knee. And afterwards, it feels really different. So most patients that have had an ACL injury will tell you they couldn't ski down the slope afterwards. They, as soon as something happened, they were like, oh no, I don't feel like I can continue and I need to, a ride down the mountain. Um, Usually within a couple hours, your knee will be fairly swollen, and you'll feel like it's pretty hard to walk, but the strange thing is, after about a week or two, you may actually feel okay again, and that's why it's that initial injury that's important, and that's usually why we want you to be evaluated, both on the mountain, but also um, once you get back into your hometown. Um, What sort of things, when said 43-year-old goes down the mountain, what sort of things do you worry about that aren't necessarily a sign of, um, the wheels coming off when you're skiing. Yeah, that's, uh, you know, other things I you know, I generally worry about is kind of like
0: joint pain, you know, <laughs> joint pain in general, because everything's going to, going to hurt afterwards. Um, you know, as you mentioned, shoulder dislocations, things like that. But I think that, um, the number one thing I think is the fear of falling, you know, fearing that you're going to fall, hurt a wrist, hurt something like that. But I think I agree anything, any kind of joint swelling, stiff decreased motion, anything that's going to take away from your ability to, uh, to perform appropriately would be would be my, my major concern. And for kids, I think the other thing as well for parents to understand is that a lot of times kids will, will can have an ACL injury or, or do something where they actually pull off a piece of bone as opposed to actually injuring the ligament, and they'll keep skiing. You know, I've had a lot of kids who actually keep doing things. So I think if your child, even though they may say, oh, my knee felt a little weird, I felt a little pop, but I'm not swelling, I'm not painful... In an adult, it'll stop them for the day. For a kid, it may it may not. So I think it's also important to get them checked out, um, even though they may seem okay, because a lot of times they can tolerate injuries as well too. Yeah.
1: yeah that's how about a good shoulder?
0: Point. Yeah, yeah. How about shoulder instability? Like, what what would you you know what what would you look out for that? Like, how do you know that your shoulder is dislocated out? Besides, obviously, the obvious one where your shoulder's sticking out the front. Are there other warning signs for that?
1: Yeah, I think knowing that you have a pretty significant shoulder injury, assuming let's say. It's not a shoulder dislocation that didn't immediately go back in. But patients will often say they felt like something shifted inside their shoulder. They felt their arm was in a weird position. Something moved, was really uncomfortable. And then the pain typically tends to be in the front of the shoulder because that's where you get the labral injury. And that's where you, even though you get the bone bruising in the back on the humeral head, you also get... Um, a fair amount of bruising in the front of the shoulder. So patients will say they're sore. They have some decreased range of motion usually. But if the shoulder doesn't truly dislocate, you can actually feel pretty good. Um, I, most of my patients that have had a, what we call a shoulder subluxation, which is kind of a partial dislocation where it goes back in, I would say about two thirds actually continued the day or at least got down the mountain, but then felt like, you know, something doesn't feel quite right. I For those patients, I usually say, you probably are going to need about three to four weeks off, let everything heal, let your muscle control get stronger. um, And that will probably decrease your injury risk. If you've had a true dislocation, it's a little bit more complicated. It tends to be Uh, More related to how old you are, how many times this has happened, how much you want to go back that season, I think it's totally reasonable for many people to try. And certainly, snowboarding is going to be higher risk. And for patients that have had a true dislocation, I usually warn them that it's time to stop the backcountry skiing, at least for this season, because trying to get out of snow with a dislocated uh, shoulder, if you don't have friends and uh, support of of the ski patrol around, can be a little bit risky.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, a lot of people ask questions as well, too, after they've kind of recovered from these injuries is when is it safe, let's say after a surgery, let's use ACL or meniscus sort of things to go back to skiing? Is skiing kind of like just like cutting and agility sports, like the last thing you get cleared for? Or is that something that earlier on in your recovery process,
1: people can go back, say yeah. coming off an ACL or coming off a, a shoulder stabilization surgery? Yeah, I think for ACLs in particular, it skiing is the final thing that you're gonna go back to. And I think part of that is because um, skiing is a cutting and pivoting sport. If Even if you are not a good skier and you only do a little bit of cutting, you are attaching a 180 centimeter fulcrum to, the, to your knee that when it pulls, it's pulling against the force of the ACL. So you really want skiing to be the final common pathway, which means for most patients, you're gonna go back at eight to nine months. And there was a good study I think it was about five or six years ago that came out of Northern Europe where they obviously have a lot of skiers and they found on average, the recreational skier went back at about 580 days after ACL surgery. And like, well, that's a really, really long time. But what that realistically means for the average skier is that you're going to get back the year afterwards, but you might not actually ski the year after, and that's okay. It's okay to miss that next season back if it's going to lower your injury rates. Yeah, so what about
0: braces? Yeah, what about, I was going to ask you, because
1: I think we tried to do a study a bunch of years ago to see if (laughs) bracing was worthwhile. Is there evidence, I guess it's a two-part question, is there evidence that bracing will decrease injury risk after ACLs? Um, I think if
0: you look at all sports in general, no. You know, like I think, in, you know, if you look at bracing prevention in terms of, you know, sports globally, I don't think there's a good study that looks at that. In general, we were taught, and I think there's some scattered studies that say that for, for downhill skiing, actually, there's some evidence that it could potentially prevent some injury risk, but there's so many confounding factors for that. Um, and then football linemen, you know, as well. But um, I think in general that if an athlete's going back to, to skiing, number one, they have to have meet all their criteria, say from an ACL injury to, to be cleared and not using the brace as an excuse that like seven months I'm gonna go ski. Um, and you can imagine that just like you mentioned, that fulcrum, the speed you're going down a brace has to be so rigid to really, 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 really prevent um, an injury um, that you just wouldn't be able to ski properly. So um, I think there hasn't really been a great study. If, if someone who's been working hard on their rehab, they've been doing all their things and they're a pretty intensive skier or doing something that's very high risk, I think it's reasonable to get a brace. Uh, but in general, I try to discourage people from using that brace as a crutch because then they either do something too risky um, and are placing themselves at risk or they don't do their rehab and use the brace as a crutch. Either.
1: Yeah, I would tend to agree. I do send my patients back for the first year with a brace. And I think I, I think it's twofold. One is, I think it reminds the patient, hey, you had an ACL last year, reminds their friends, your friend had an ACL injury last year. Let's go a little easy. Um, but I also think it does prevent a little bit of injury risk, mainly because it gives you that sense of proprioception or where your knee is in space when you're going down the mountain. And I think it probably decreases the risk, maybe let's say, Twenty percent, but if I'm a patient and it takes a twenty percent risk reduction down, I think it, I think that's worth it. Especially when the brace is either affordable through insurance or at this point you can get them online on Amazon and they're just as good.
0: Yeah, I think the last question for everyone, because particularly since people go up and ski for a couple of days, what's the best way to recover? You know, after a full day of skiing, stretching, icing, yeah. intoxicating yourself. I, yeah, like there's the, uh...
1: there's great evidence. Get in your car. Um, right at the right on the last run, and drive six hours down um (laughs) I eighty and get as sore as you can. And so once cramping happens, keep driving. (laughs) No, I think the most important thing is rest. Once you've done a couple days of skiing, it's rare for us to do an activity that is eight hours of an athletic activity. And then all of a sudden we expect our bodies to recover after a day or two of skiing. I see the lights went out, which is always yeah. a good sign uh, with bad weather um, with the with going two, three, four days, especially if you have that opportunity to have a multi day ski adventure. One of those days should be a rest day where you go about a half a day, let your body recover because it's really that fatigue at the end of a three, four day journey where we're just not used to it. We don't exercise that long for that many days. So give your body either in between a long ski break or when you return a few days to let yourself recover, let the muscles no longer be sore before you restart your normal athletic routine.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree. And I think also the other thing that we don't, particularly for us down here in the Bay is the altitude as well too. So making sure you're drinking a lot of water, staying hydrated, um, your heart rate's gonna be a little bit more elevated. So just doing those basic things while you're skiing as well too to aid in recovery. Um, so you're not waking up the next day with altitude sickness, headaches, and, and decreased muscle recovery. So obviously lots lots to consider with skiing with a lot of people going up over the next couple of weeks. But um, once again, thank you for listening to our podcast and stay safe out there on the slopes, whether you're skiing or snowboarding. Thank you.